Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 122 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today, Louise and I are interviewing Dave Feldman of The Cholesterol Code. Louise, you know Dave, you've met him a few times. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you met him and, you know, give us his bio and stuff. Yes, it's been a really great privilege to have met Dave a couple of times. The first time I met Dave was in Breckenridge and I went twice to Breckenridge with the low carb um, Breckenridge conferences and coming across Dave then in the with the two keto dudes I was in the house with the two keto dudes we in the party house <laughs> and we were obviously bunking in all together and this was a way that we were able to obviously share the costs for accommodation on the mountain so Breckenridge being one of the premier um, ski resorts so this is when you know a whole group of doctors that like skiing this is where they hold their conferences in a, in a ski resort so we're in the party house with the two kiddo dudes and we're cooking up a storm and, you know, standing around the kitchen talking cholesterol. And it was really a super opportunity to, to get to know Dave at the, at the conferences and, you know, hearing his presentations. And over the first and second, uh, well, the low-carb Denver um, Breckenridge conferences, as well as the Keto Fest, um, the actual festivals. And also he came to Australia with his wife and it was really great to see him at Low Carb on the Gold Coast. So, yeah, it was just obviously our paths were crossing, obviously, through the um, the two Keto Dudes Network at that time. So, And then it was obviously really great. We were able to, at the Keto Fest was when Siobhan first met Dave and, um, you know, we were at the, um, at Carl Franklin's house. So it was almost feeling a little bit, you know, a little bit like, you know, matchmaking. So, um, it was, it was really great to sort of be there at the, at the start of the journey for Sandy for Siobhan. And then obviously watching the, the stellar rise of, of Dave Feldman. Yeah. You were saying when we interviewed Siobhan, you were saying how you remember her coming in on the bus with her mum and, yeah and it was it was that was the first time I met her was in Carl Franklin's kitchen and um it was just you know this this young lady and her her mom um and you know it was sort of yeah she was just this really shy introverted but intensely obviously intelligent young lady and you know she was um talking um certainly her interest in low low carb diets because you know she, for herself for her her mum and her dad particularly because he'd had the heart attack as well 
and her interest in obviously understanding the science for it as well. So that was the, the one of the first, that was at the first Keto Fest um, in New London, Connecticut. So, yeah, and when we were sort of obviously hearing the, the speakers on the speaker day, you know, and Dave was there and she was going, wow, so fascinating and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, why did you go up and ask him? Go on, go and talk to him. Go and introduce yourself. Oh, I can't do that. Come on, let's go. So here's me, the brash Aussie, going up to Dave because I'd met him at the party house, you know, at um, Breckenridge. So that was in the February and by the July, you know, I was back in America. So, yeah, it was just obviously, you know, facilitating those introductions and, um, you know, just really connecting. And I think that's really what the community does. The community really connects us. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a bit about Dave? Yeah. So as we heard, or we will hear that Dave is a senior software engineer and now he is a proud funded citizen scientist and after seeing his cholesterol skyrocket on when he started on a ketogenic diet he became obsessively researching lipidology and through a series of self-experiments which were just really great um, we'll hear more about that he has demonstrated unprecedented data which is now building towards a larger lipid energy model this concept is being explored with his collaborations, and this is really great about the community, the other scientists and researchers, and may potentially help explain much of the phenomena around high cholesterol on a low-carb ketogenic diet. And isn't that something that we always see, you know, in the Facebook groups and um, many posts? I've just started this high-fat diet uh, you know, has done wonders, but my doctor, you know, says that my cholesterol's high. And um, Dave will explain further about that. So, yeah. Jackie, so why I, don't we let's hear the hear the interview? I was going to say I'm not a lean mass hyper responder because I'm definitely not lean. <laughs> but my um, my cholesterol has I don't know if it's gone up or not because I'd never had any blood tests before, or, so or I hadn't check them so but my cholesterol is quite high and it often gets highlighted when I have my blood test so yeah I'm with you I'm not lean but my cholesterol is high but and this was one of the conversations in the kitchen at the Breckenridge party house was um, with Andrew being a lean mass hyper responder so um yeah so that yeah. was that was really great yeah he's very lean so let's hear from Dave Welcome, Dave, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming. So we always start with where in the world are you? I am in Las Vegas, Nevada, in the States, as you'd say. <laughs> Is it hot all year round? Uh, I mean, honestly, I feel like the weather is beautiful. Uh, we don't really get a lot of like rain or snow or anything like that it's pretty much clear skies almost the entire year round uh, save some occasional spots of rain but uh, i would honestly say that nine months out of the year the the temperature is great it's like in the 70s you know oh. roughly just there's a few sweltering months around the summer where yeah. you can get up into the hundreds oh. but Sounds yeah good. i love it <laughs> is that where you're from no i'm actually originally from colorado okay so not too far away. So why don't you start by just giving us a 
a brief insight into how you came into low carb. But we're really this time, instead of focusing on cholesterol, we're going to look more about what you've been doing more recently. So maybe just give us an overview of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, obviously, cholesterol is a big part of my origin story, as it were. I uh, saw myself, uh, my, my A1C was creeping up. And I started doing some research and found a lot of people were going on this so-called low carb diet. I adopted it myself. That's when I saw my cholesterol go up in spite of everything else seeming to be so much better. And uh, I got very obsessed. As an engineer, I started learning everything I could about the study of the cholesterol moving around in our body, which is called lipidology. And that was seven years ago. And since then, that's uh, that's been a major focus of my life. So you're an engineer, you can under you understand systems and systems design and those sorts of things. You know, this is such, you know, you're way out of your wheelhouse. You're swimming not in your lane. You know, you were obviously taking, as you've done, a deep dive into not, you know, you, you didn't train in, in health systems. But what has engineering done for you and your understanding of lipidology? Well, honestly, just about everything. I mean, what I love about learning with lipidology is that this system functions a lot like a network. In fact, to use an analogy, right now we use, for example, emails. Emails have a variable level of content that's in the email. And you've probably seen headers. Headers are on emails. That kind of helps to guide the email as to where to go. Well, actually, lipoproteins, lipid-carrying proteins that are in our bloodstream right now that carry lipids around to tissues that need them, they function in many of the same ways. For example, they have a variable level of lipid content inside these boats that are moving them around in our circulation. And they have these proteins on the outside of them that function a lot like headers. So in many respects, my experience in software engineering, particularly in platform development, um, really kind of situated me well to sort of um, analogize a lot of this and, and kind of fit into those aspects of it that I can relate to, which turns out to be many. So you, this is a being obviously said, you know, seven years. And um, so I met you first in 2017 and that was at Breckenridge. That's is, right. Is, yep. Yeah. And, um, and now we're here in, you know, 2022 and you've really ramped up your presence because you're Dave, the, you know, the cholesterol guy. And, you know, whenever anyone in any of the, the groups go, oh, have you watched Dave's video and, you know, Dave's content and, you know, Dave Feldman, you know, on his cholesterol code and which we'll put links to the show notes, you know, you've got a massive footprint now as Dave, the cholesterol guy. Um, where has this journey sort of taken you in terms of um, not just public education, but now you're moving to obviously research and, and development. Yeah. I mean, without question at the time that you met me, um, I mean, I want to say on Twitter, I maybe had, I don't know, a thousand followers, maybe 2000 followers. Um, and I was trying my hardest to network at that time, 
just to see if these ideas had traction with people who really were in the field of research formally. Uh, because effectively, I was doing informal research. I was doing a lot of these experiments with myself. I was taking lots of, um, as you know, I was getting my blood drawn a lot. And I put a lot of that data in the talk of that very Breckenridge visit you're talking about. That was that was kind of my first breakout presentation where I think I got on the map of a lot of folks who I'm now working with today. But that it it was it was really hard because while there were a lot of people in the conventional space of lipidology who I was sending emails to, I was knocking on their doors, I couldn't quite get them that interested in it. And pretty soon I was recognizing that there were patterns beyond just LDL being high. But as you know, I identify and regularly speak of something I call the triad, which is the combination of three markers, the high LDL cholesterol, so-called bad cholesterol, high HDL cholesterol, so-called good cholesterol, and low triglycerides, which is, of course, a measure of fat in the blood. But without getting into all the specifics and the mechanisms of it, I'll just say that in identifying this combination, I realized that there was this, this phenotype that's very anti-intuitive, that actually of people going on a low-carb diet, the leaner and fitter you were, the more likely you'd see a very pronounced version of this triad, people with really high LDL. In fact, the people with the highest LDL tended to be seemingly the most metabolically healthy. And so here I am, I'm, I'm knocking on the doors of these lipidologists going, come on, you've got to check this out. This seems to be so ubiquitous. It seems to be going across all these different ages, all the, all genders, all ethnicities. This seems to be very mechanistic and really we should be getting some study on it. But there was a problem. The problem was that because the LDL levels were so high and because it's so universally considered pathogenic, which I'll you know, quickly acknowledge it's possible that it is, right? But because it's considered that that is uh, just absolutely uh, a given, it subtracted the interest for conventional lipidologists to uh, conduct a lot of study on this. And so eventually what happened is in 2019, I went on a stage in Houston and I said, you know what? I, I've kind of given up trying to get this privately through conventional methods. I'm going to see if I can just talk a lot of you guys into giving me money to run my own study <laughs> on these lean mass hyper responders. That's the name of the phenotype, right? And if I run it on these lean mass hyperresponders, you know, it'd be great is if I could get at least $50,000. What I really want is I want $200,000 because I figure it'll be about $2,000 per lean mass hyperresponder. And um, I've begun an, a, a nonprofit organization, a public charity all around making this happen called the Citizen Science Foundation. And I have to tell you that, that when I started that, I had I had no idea whether it was going to work at all. I, I mean, usually when you do something like a Kickstarter, they tell you the max you should ever ask for. The maximum is 50000 And that's if the people who are your Kickstarter supporters are getting something like a, you know, a concert ticket or they're getting a game or a device out of it, something that they get for being a contributor. 
And so here I am, I'm going, look, we just need some data. And we need this data to kind of unlock that fear in case we're right about the optimism of this being truly metabolically driven, that it may in fact not be high risk. And if so, this might get the conventional researchers interested in it. So that was in 2019. And I'm proud to say that today in 2022, that study is happening right now. And we really are That's looking awesome. at, uh, lean mass hyperspawners to see if this can happen. Yeah. So, and I absolutely remember the, the first conversation, obviously, um, we're in the with the two keto dudes and we're at Breckenridge. This is 2017. And um, so Andrew, my partner, was there and he went up to you and he went, you know, um, yeah, my cholesterol's gone really sky high. And that's when, you know, 2017, you sort of said, you sound like a lean mass hyper responder, which Andrew is. He fits that phenotype, being lean and mean and, you know, slim and athletic. And now, you know, 2022, you're absolutely, you know, you're you're here on the precipice. You're researching, you're collecting the data. And is that study going to be obviously tracking these people um, in terms of all of that? Um, and we'll put the link to the the really great, I think it was about a two, three-minute um, YouTube where you absolutely show the triad and you were saying, obviously, that this um, in your one of your other studies was saying about the case, the case study that they have zero plaques, so there's no pathogenesis, as you said, you know, because of the high LDL. Well, maybe. Uh, let me first, I'll walk that cat back for a second. This is part of what we're doing this study on. You're speaking to a case study that we've published. Um, all of these, just real quick for the listener, you can just go to cholesterolcode.com slash papers. And we have all of the papers, including the video abstracts. We have two video abstracts on two of the four papers that are now published in the literature. So what you're referring to is we did a case study that we published in April and it was around uh, someone who for two and a half years at the time that they were um, getting a scan for two and a half years, they were on keto, very lean. And sure enough, they had LDL levels in like the 500s. Um, to be fair, this was somebody who was younger. They were uh, 26 at the time that they were getting their scan. Um, but that said, we compared them to, for example, um, uh, somebody with monogenetic FH, uh, FH being familial hypercholesterolemia. So basically, a lot of what kind of anchors the lipid hypothesis at one end of the spectrum, that very high levels of LDL cholesterol will cause higher levels of heart disease are folks who, unfortunately, if they're born with this, um, with both of these alleles, and sorry, I'm going to try to say this in a non-technical way. <laughs> if they're born, if they're born with a genetic mutation such that they cannot metabolize lipids and lipoproteins very well, so they have a problem with it such that it leaves more of them in, in circulation, so that the detectable levels in circulation are very high that can associate with extremely high levels of cardiovascular disease. And this was very compelling to Brown and Goldstein, who had gone to win the Nobel Prize for this uh, 50 years ago, 
because they would look at children, literally children who were born with this disease. Um, uh, the first pivotal patient for them, uh, she was exhibiting xanthomas at age three and had an angina at age three and had her first heart attack at age six. It's, it's terrible. Um, but it's, it's part of what sort of brought about the level of expectation that um, this was a disease that could help establish the causality of high LDL. Now, I think there's a little bit more to the story, but without going into it, it's why in a roundabout way from a scientific perspective, the emergence of lean mass hyperresponders, especially with the super high levels of LDL provides a huge scientific opportunity because whereas those with monogenetic FH have this mutation where it's not just that they have the high LDL in circulation, that lack of metabolizing of LDL may be relevant. Well, now we have folks who we believe are metabolizing uh, fat, uh, lipids, and lipoproteins um, well, I assume, but don't know for sure, um, like this person in our case study, such that their levels are comparable to somebody with monogenetic FH. And so in that case study, we looked at a comparison of a baby who had been diagnosed at 0.9. They hadn't actually reached one years old and were already exhibiting xanthomas with a comparable uh, LDL to our patient that was in the 500s. Uh, and that baby would eventually at age eight, I believe, would get scanned, but had uh, a lot of interventions from, from the moment that they were baby that brought the LDL levels down quite a bit. Um, but sure enough, they had advanced heart disease at age eight. But our patient had a whole lifetime of, you know, something like 24 years. And the existing hypothesis is, is that lifetime of exposure to LDL counts against you. It's kind of like it's wearing down. Yeah, they call it the LDL burden, wears into your uh, arteries. They had, you know, two and a half decades. Then on top of that added LDL of 500s for 2.5 years, it would stand to reason that they should have some atherosclerosis. Um, but again, it is an anecdote. It's a single case study. So to be fair, yep. You know, yep. just like you may have an uncle who smoked three packs a day mm -hmm. and they get heart disease, that's an obvious caveat. But that's why that kind of helps me segue into why we're doing this larger study, which is going on right now, um, which is longitudinal. So I'll give you the quick brief overview of it. Uh, this is the one that I, that I raised the money for out of Houston that's going on right now. We're getting 100 lean mass hyperresponders. We're flying them to UCLA. The Lundquist Institute is the research center that's doing it for us. All of them are getting advanced blood work, but crucially, they're getting something known as a CT angiogram. It's a scan of your cardiovascular system. It's, it's the highest resolution non-invasive scan. It's great because it looks at both uh, calcified and non-calcified plaque. Yeah. And so you not only get it at high resolution, but all of the participants from whenever they got their first scan, that's day zero, roughly 365 days later, about a year later, we fly them back to get a second scan. And then those second, the, the two scans are compared for whatever level of progression there is on existing plaque. 
Um, and so we already get a lot of information from the get-go because the eligibility requirement is that you have to have been a lean mass hyper responder effectively for two or more years. And so we, we already know that at least that last check, our average was around four years. It's about four years per, um, for the mean average of participants. Again, getting back to the existing hypothesis of overall exposure time, uh, since we've been generally landing at around middle age, people in their 50s, there should be a lot of advanced heart disease given the existing lipid hypothesis. Is that what we're going to see? Well, we'll find out pretty soon um, because we're going to have the preliminary paper out. Hopefully, I don't know, hopefully in like the next few months, but that will be a powerful study because beyond it being a single case study, this is prospective. So we laid out the criteria and now people are coming and that way, you know, there's not the risk of selection bias that can come up with case studies. But yeah. how much of this this particular science sort of stuff? So you know, are you hoping to perhaps persuade one? You know, challenge obviously the the conventional thinking, and two, how much does it say about citizen science and citizen scientists really taking control of you know? the the new knowledge you know i think there's there's two parts to it one you know you're really butting heads with the conventional wisdom and two you're not harvard oxford stanford you're just you know citizen science yes although i'm those it's funny you mentioned those three i'm roping in people from oxford stanford harvard right um it's it's almost as much, I, I mentioned this off air, but this is the truth. In many respects, I feel now like I'm almost as much a politician as anything else because I'm I'm having to, um, I'm sure you've heard the phrase herding cats. Mm-hmm. It's like herding cats, right? You're, you're, I'm finally getting enough interest from a lot of key parties. Um, but to be fair, you know, I'm not standing alone. I'm I'm extraordinarily thrilled that uh, Dr. Tro um, got on board with a case series that ultimately expanded out to our first paper with the LMHR study. Nick Norwitz being the first author on that, and who, who's now become a, just a key collaborator. Who I cannot imagine a lot of this being pushed forward with because um, without his first authorship help on making so many of these things happen, and he's. Uh, you know, found many more ways to expand on it as well. David Ludwig with being not only first senior author, but also, of course, uh, helping us connect uh, ultimately with other authors. And that like, it's, it's been, you know, when you met me, it was, it was a lot of rolling down the hill. And now it feels like I finally have like some footholds getting up closer to the summit. Right. But it's true in a roundabout way, there's two battles. One is sure, just the concept of the mechanism differences with with the idea of lipoproteins being just inherently atherogenic, as in they will cause heart disease, whatever the context. Even proposing the possibility that there's a context in which this may not be the case is already hugely controversial. Mm-hmm. But that's almost not the first step that's like the cart the horse is just the getting there to where we study it 
that part is surprisingly difficult. The, the me you met five years ago, definitely certainly seven years ago, I just thought it was only a matter of getting it to the right person. And then they would just take it from there. And I could get back to like writing code and building platforms and so forth. Um, but I honestly feel like, you know, the crucial part of my own story was in founding the Citizen Science Foundation because it's it's what kind of really got, you know, once you get some money behind it, you can write some checks, you can start negotiating like with the research center, but like with Lundquist and there's some other parties I'm talking to uh, behind the scenes, but it that's what it took. That's what it, that's what it does take. And in that sense, I've got to also thank, you know, not just my research partners, but you and people listening, everybody who's contributed to helping make this happen. It just wouldn't be happening without the community stepping up. So that's, that's, you know, citizen science writ large, right? That's all of us participating in making this happen. But I don't think the, 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 sorry, Jackie, but the, the thing is, you know, your legacy is really one, it's about the translation. You know, you've translated this knowledge of uh, and made it more accessible, you know, through your skill as being a science communicator. And I, I remember having this conversation with you in, I think we we're on the Gold Coast. And, you know, you had beautiful pictures of, you know, the, the, the boats and the life rafts and that sort of stuff. And that's the gift, you know, and I think that that's something that you're supremely, um, you know, uh, you might sort of say un unremarkable, but your gift is in the communication and you've communicated this so much more accessible in the messaging that we don't need to be afraid of, you know, cholesterol. And obviously, being able to conceptualize the lean mass hyperresponder because so many people, you know, in the Facebook groups, you know, my cholesterol keto is bad. I'm going to have a heart attack. And everybody goes, no, you need to go to cholesterolcode.com, put your numbers in the, in the report, just watch Dave's videos. You'll be fine. You know, and I think that that is the legacy is one is made it so much more accessible through your translation and two, you are now, as you said, skillfully, politically moving to challenging the conventional wisdom in the way that public aside to the science community. So through, you know, citizen science, you are arguing on their terms, the longitudinal, this was the case study, this was obviously the scoping review, this, this I see this is, the legacy part two is this is the next contribution. You've had to find the rules of engagement of getting the collaborations to get the money to do the study and put it now in the code, the form, science, evidence, to really move it to the next step. So um, I think you've you've come a long way since 2017. Yes, well, thank you. Of course, I've got to insert the correction. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. I'm very careful to be sure that I emphasize this is a hypothesis, including the lipidergic model. Right. So I I wouldn't say to somebody, I know you're fine with your super high levels of cholesterol any more than I know you know the lean mass hyperresponders through our study are going to be fine. Um, rather, and this is where it gets challenging. I want to be able to chart a course where I can say in a nuanced fashion, you know, this is what I think is going on. 
And if it turns out that what I think is going on is true, it can make it make sense as to why, you know, our case study would turn out to be indicative of the larger, um, you know, population of lean mass hyperresponders. But first of all, it's possible, for example, in our study that we're doing right now out of LA, that actually, you know, let's say 95% of them at a population level look pretty good, but there's a few that pop out and it turns out, you know, there's some polygenetic uh, aspects to it that we just couldn't have known until we're doing it, right? Um, things like that, where it's not, it's more of a middle of the road or there's some, you know, additional asterisks or something like that, that's always possible. But the other aspect of it is, is that uh, I, I credit social media, the platforms of social media for empowering me to make this work because many of my co-authors I've connected through social media and so forth. But at the same time, and it's funny we're chatting now, at the time that we're recording this, I'm technically on a hiatus from social media. And it's helped to kind of take a step back because much of the quote unquote citizen science effect has been organizing and networking through it. But the interesting thing is, is it has limits to its scale because before when there were critics of my work, I could engage them directly such that they would understand the nuance a bit more. But the interesting thing is, is as your profile grows, there's almost a kind of construct, which I, which I call the communal straw man, right? Um, let me, let me pick a good example. Uh, I'm sure you guys know um, Gary Taubes. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a kind of communal straw man for Gary Taubes, right? I know that people who are not fans of Gary Taubes think of him in a certain way that even when he's taking great pains to sort of expand on it. And this isn't to say that, you know, he's flawless or anything, but, but just that a lot of what is kind of attributed to him is very different than as you kind of understand where he's coming from in his position, especially reading through his books and so forth. And to be fair, I think this also happens from within the low-carb communities. For example, I think there's kind of a communal straw man for uh, Ansel Keys, I'm going to dare to say, right? But there, there's a lot of things I respect about Ansel Keys' work, you know, outside of um, the Seven Country Study, for example, right? But this is kind of the nature of social media, particularly Twitter, that I have found to be sort of a challenge, especially as my profile gets larger, which is that that's kind of how it functions a lot, is how can you summarize somebody's work or the person themselves in a very black and white, good or bad fashion? And that becomes very challenging when I'm doing exactly what I just now described, which is I want to be able to say, hey, this is what I think is going on, but I'm not sure. You probably heard me use the phrase cautiously optimistic, right? So I'm cautiously optimistic with regard to the risk as it associates with high LDL uh, resulting from metabolic fat adaptation, right? But even though I could fit that into a tweet, I can't count on people to retain it. More likely, people will say something that's very reductionist, like Dave says high LDL spine. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I have a complicated version that I'm researching and I'm not even sure about, which is why I even say it that way. Yeah. So how long how do you fit that in? Sorry. How long is the research going on for? Because I'm guessing it would take time to compare CT scans. Yes. So right now we are, I want to say we're about 75 to 80% fully recruited. 
we we'll probably have another couple months to go at least, I think, before we get to our last person's first scan. And then whenever that happens, remember, it's a year from whenever that last person first scan happens will be their second scan. And then that will be with the point where all the data comes back. Then there's the analysis. Then there's the publication. So we're probably at least a year and a half to two years out is my guess. Um, but as impatient as I get myself, as I try to tell everybody, you know, just think a year ago, we didn't have any study. Yeah. And a year before that, you know, we couldn't even get anybody interested enough to do it. So again, we've, we've come a long way. Yeah. And I think you need to do it independently because then you don't have the bias of the big corporations coming in and saying, um, well, we don't want to do that, or we're going to cherry pick the data as we know that they sometimes do. So this way it can be more impartial, I guess. I'm sure there's some biases there as well, though. <laughs> well, this this was actually a big thing for me, too. I, I For me, the silver lining was, hey, at least if I'm funding it and I'm the funder, you know, I could help design what I felt was the most transparent uh, version of this uh, to the degree that I can negotiate. I should be fair to say that I can't get my way on everything. It's not like I can direct and require that everything be exactly the way that I want it to be done. Uh, but that said, um, there wasn't going to be anything. One of the things I can get a bit vocal on sometimes is I don't love when the analysis is selected after the data is in hand. I think that that's a major problem with research these days, is it, particularly with epidemiology, that you've got these large data sets you know the conclusion you want to reach. And now it's just a matter of working out what levers to pull um, that can be reasonably justified. And I'm not even saying this is so much a conscious bias. I think there's a lot of unconscious bias in uh, adjustment selection. But as much as we talk about quality of data, I feel like we don't talk as much about quality of adjustments and a quality of models and so forth as I think we should. But again, I think that's why it's important to just you know, have more of the raw data and more of the raw analysis presented alongside what it is that you uh, model and adjust for. Mm. So, Jackie, um, I met Dave again at um, at a keto fest, and obviously, this this is a real step up to um, one of the keto fests. Was actually Dave was running an experiment. You know, not only it's a real shift because. Whereas he used to do all these experiments on himself, you know, he's actually moved along now. He's actually recruited other people to do the experiment on. So anyway, so, and this was, this was the, um, the one where we had the, like the point of care testing and you were, you know, the pre and post, um, you know, you had everybody fast before, um, you know, keto fest, and then you did the blood tests and then we had three days or two, three days of eating all the delicious, you know, Carl and Richard food. And then we did the, um, did the testing again. And I think, you know, it might be a good good opportunity to sort of tell us about another conceptualization that you had about the the drop um doing the um the cholesterol drop experiment. Yeah, sure. Well and first of all, that's published. That was that's now the most recent paper in my first first authorship. Um so if you go to uh again that link cholesterolcode.com slash papers it's the last 
link and it we're using data from that keto fest experiment from 2017 and yeah so let's we'll get a little sciencey for a sec because i i've been working a little bit on kind of a little bit of a more stock simplification for lay people but this is the good news the good news is is the model's been refined a lot for me personally in my mind as to the key principal things to bear in mind and Ironically, learning all of the different lipoprotein subtypes and lipoproteins are these boats or submarines, right? In truth, even in, in my mind, I think that there has really been a shift in um, the, the specificity of the thing to focus on. So while you've heard about LDL, I'm sure you've also heard about ApoB, right? Yeah. And the way ApoB is described, and certainly the way that I learned about it, is it's this one big protein that's on every LDL. Every LDL has one copy of it, but also every VLDL, which precedes an LDL, has one copy of it. And every chylomicron, which comes from your gut, has one copy on it. And more and more, I realized that actually the ApoB is the real boat the ApoB is the only thing that's truly immutable, the only thing that's truly fixed. And actually everything else that's on the ApoB containing lipoprotein, that's all mutable. That all comes apart and can be taken up by cells and can be taken up by HDL. So here's an easy way to think of it. ApoB is really a carrier protein. It's really meant to start big, which is how it leaves either your gut from food you just ate or leaves your liver all bloated up with lipids and then goes into circulation and its job is to get small by dropping them off. Yeah. And as it does that, it's doing it through predominantly an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase, which your cells express when they want to have it. So if you can think of it, your, your body is running a buffet. I like to say your bloodstream is like a big buffet line, right? And so just, it, and when you think about it, if you're running a restaurant and you're running a buffet line, you don't need to keep track of every single person in the restaurant. You just need to keep track of the buffet line. And that's what your body does is just constantly keeping an eye on how much, how much of the fuel it's making available. And that's why when we go keto and you're getting the glucose down, it's going, well, we're, we don't have as much glucose in you know, the fridge. Now we're going to get more of the fat out of the deep freeze and make sure that that's made available. Right. And the deep freeze are your fat cells. Okay. Well, here's where it gets interesting. While those ApoB, they start big and are meant to get small, on the other side, it has a counterpart that's almost exactly the opposite in many respects, and that's HDL. HDL's primary protein is called ApoA1, but just remember HDL. HDL, their job is to start small. They're brought into the bloodstream small and to get large. How do they get large? They get large by picking up lipids often from these ApoB lipoproteins in the bloodstream. 
odds are you learned about HDL the same way I did, which is that you heard all of this LDL is dropping cholesterol into our uh, vascular system, into the arterial wall, and HDL is pulling it out. And that is in part true, but a lot of where HDL, this fleet of HDL lipoproteins are pulling their uh, surface components from, and a lot of their cargo are from these ApoB containing lipoproteins as they are reducing their lipids. Because that process, that lipoprotein lipase, it's pulling out a lot of the lipids into the cell, but a lot of them are spilling off. And a lot of what's getting spilled off in that process of its turnover, it's coming into the other fleet, into the HDL. And that's why when you do this protocol, like you see in this paper, and like for those people who have done it, they don't just see their LDL drop. They often see their HDL go up, right? And their triglycerides go down. So given what I just told you, let me tell you what's happening. You're eating a lot of that steak. You're eating a lot of the eggs. You're having the heavy whipping cream. Okay. These big bloated chylomicrons are getting formed in your gut, which are also ApoB, right? But they're coming into circulation. And guess what? It's storage time. Your insulin levels are higher. And now your adipocytes, they need to pick up a lot. They're, they, they're going to pick up a lot of those triglycerides that you're literally bringing into your bloodstream. Triglycerides are the stored form of fat. Because you, you're ready to actually grow your fat cells. It's You're supposed to, right? It's storage time. Okay. Since you're over-consuming, your adipocytes are on overtime. They're needing to expand. And as they expand to, to accommodate the new contents of what's coming in, how do they do that? How do they, I mean, your fat cells are the most elastic typically as far, uh, uh, as far as expansion needs of anything for both expanding or contracting. When they're expanding, they're made of these bilayers. So if you look, if you look right now at a, uh, a cell, you're going to see these bilayers of phospholipids and free cholesterol. That's what they're made of. Well, guess what these lipoprotein surface components are made of? Same thing, phospholipids and free cholesterol. So what do I think is happening? Why, why are your ApoB lipoproteins going down when you're over consuming a lot of fat? I think your fat cells are incorporating them. They're endocytosing them, right? And the big clue that there's more of this lipoprotein lipase that's a part of it is your HDL going up because that's downstream of this process. Why are your triglycerides going down when you're eating so much fat? Because they're getting pulled into your fat cells, into your adipocytes. And that's why this triad, that's why looking at all three of these, not just the LDL, but looking at the HDL and the triglycerides says so much about the success or failure of this process. That's why watching it go in in reverse is just as exciting, right? So if the triglycerides are being pulled out of the blood and stored in adipocytes, mm -hmm. why are people staying lean? Why are people, oh, well, so this isn't an overconsumption, right? So this protocol that we're talking about that we did with KetoFest. So for example, let, let's let's back up a step. KetoFest had two phases. One phase was that first phase um, Louise just talked about. 
which is people either fasted or they under-consumed to their baseline. Whatever their baseline diet was, they were supposed to eat less of it. Okay, so that's going to be the reverse script. What's happening in that situation? Well, now your adipocytes, your fat cells, they're predominantly releasing fat, right? They're releasing free fatty acids into your bloodstream. And what we posit under the model is in that circumstance, there's less that's being taken up, not just by your liver, but also by your primary customer for lipoproteins, which are your fat cells. They're like, no, no, no. We want to make sure that we're sparing out as much as possible for oxidative tissues um, like your muscle cells, right? Technically, fat cells are oxidative as well, but but muscle cells, cardiac, et cetera, um, because, we're, because we're predominantly in a release state. And this is easily detectable because your triglycerides in the bloodstream actually get higher when you're fasting. And your LDL tends to get higher when you're fasting, right? Mm. But importantly, HDL tends to be lower. HDL is lower because your adipocytes aren't doing as much of that turnover. Now we enter the second phase in KetoFest because that was the first three days. And then PTS diagnostics, we all took blood work. And then everybody was instructed to overconsume. And all three of those markers went in the other direction for most people, for the vast majority of people. Most people saw their LDL drop by 16%, I think was our mean average drop. And uh, triglycerides dropped significantly and HDL went up. Why? Because now you're engaging your fat cells. Your fat cells are like, oh, okay, I guess it's time to pick up a lot of these triglycerides out of the bloodstream. It's storage time. And we need to expand. That's a part of the that's a part of the lipid energy model that we don't actually have published yet, but that I'm working on right now. And we need, we kind of need tracer studies because it gets pretty complicated. But it's Occam's razor to me because that's where you're going to get the ability to expand it. As you learn about biochemistry, you learn that cell cell walls at those sizes, they don't stretch. They, in order to expand on a cell membrane, you need to incorporate more of the surface area components of that cell membrane. And likewise, in order to contract a cell membrane, you need to shed more of those surface components. And it's a complicated process, but our body is genius in being able to put together this thing I'm telling you about assuming we're right, that makes it make sense as to how this would work when you're fat adapted. That's why, like, in many ways, this is sort of a confluence of things that worked well. Because had I gone keto on my own in, say, the 80s, this wouldn't have been possible. I couldn't have been having all of this data that, that shared back to me to be able to even see these patterns in the first place. Mm. And it's only because of so many things like the KetoFest experiment. Again, getting back to citizen science, right? Getting back to people who I could say, Hey guys, would you mind doing this with me? And then they're doing it with me and we're actually getting this data. And then that can help advance us to the next step of the research that we can start putting these puzzle pieces together. Um, that's, what's cool about it is, yeah, it's great that we're now actually publishing. It's great that we now actually have some bigger researchers that are interested, but the genesis of this was people like us going, Hey, let's just do this. You know? Yeah. I but, I th but I think it's also the fact that, you know, um, 
whether, you know, it is the engineer in you that sort of goes, hey, this mechanistically system, you know, the the level of inquiry, the curiosity, but, you know, the fact that you have been able to obviously then, you know, you you have had this introspection and you've asked the questions, you've engaged with the community. But, again, I get back to the fact that you are a wonderful communicator and a translator that you've been able to sort of share that with with the community and now you're sort of moving this this on. But something that you said offline is the fact that, and this again, you know, gets to the fact that you are helping to dispel the myths of just that one focus on that one marker, that LDL, and you're going, no, that doesn't make sense. We don't just focus on the oil gauge or the petrol gauge. You know, we don't. And I think you use the car analogy, which I'll stop talking and let you tell everybody <laughs> yeah, yeah, what no, it is, I, that, the way that you communicated. Yeah, I, I like <laughs> I like the car, car analogy because a lot of people could relate to this. Let's say, let's say we only ever had, you know, four-cylinder cars in our lives, right, forever. And then suddenly somebody introduces some new model of cars and it's louder. And they go, yeah. It's a six-cylinder car. Well, we've only ever known four-cylinder cars. And we're like, hey, wait a sec. I've seen study after study that shows that the louder a car is, the more that associates with there being problems with the car. You're like, oh, no, 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 just hold on. Maybe <laughs> this car is louder for a different reason because of the six cylinders. You're like, ah, this less specific data set, I want to go buy more, right? So let me let me pick on something a little closer to home. Let's take uh, BMI, which is body mass index, right? Well, BMI associates, the higher it is, the more it's going to associate with, for example, diabetes. Okay, but that it's that's a loose association. We already know there's problems with BMI if you're not taking into account things like body fat percentage, right? So why not go ahead and move towards greater specificity in looking at body fat, because then you don't have people like Joe Rogan or uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or these other people who obviously have a lot of muscle mass, but a lot of, but low fat mass. Right. Mm -hmm. But imagine being in arguments with people who are, who are saying, no, 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 there's study after study that associates BMI with type two diabetes. And Mm -hmm. guess what? If you just broadly grab people who have a high BMI and put them on a diet at a population level, their diabetes levels go down right? That could be accurate. If you have people who have a genetic disease that associates with lower BMI, that associates with lower uh, blood pressure, of course, sure. Uh, but the problem is, is that obviously we're not yet getting to the specificity. Well, in the case of higher LDL, almost all of our data that has an association of LDL with cardiovascular disease has populations that have metabolic uh, uh, dysfunctional lipid metabolism, either ones they're born with, like FH, which I spoke about earlier, or you know acquired diseases such as hyperinsulinemia and, and pathological insulin resistance and so forth. So all I'm asking is, just like with BMI, right, or this you know other car type, whatever, let's just look intentionally at folks who we know, or at least seemingly. Uh, are metabolically healthy. They don't seem to have some genetic abnormality and they don't seem to have some acquired disease of uh, dysfunctional lipid metabolism. 
seem to have functioning lipid metabolism, and then see how much high LDL associates with cardiovascular disease. And that's why we're afforded this enormous opportunity in that those folks who uh, already are keto and are already non-adherent, so they're, they're not going to take steps to lower their LDL. That's what the study is, is, hey, can we at least get you in so that we can scan you and just like study, you know, since it's a natural history, why not? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it, it's sort of what I'm hearing is the nuance because obviously there are whole populations of, um, you know, sort of Pacific Islanders, you know, the Maori who are obviously very, very musculature and that sort of stuff. So BMI, you know, is a broad blunt instrument, just as you're saying LDL is just a broad looking at that one indicator is it's very blunt. It doesn't take into the nuances of, of, as you said, the triad, the, the relationship between, yes, between them. Yeah. I'm glad you brought me back to that because that's the, the, the beauty of the triad is that it's usually already in, it's already resident in the data sets we're looking at. Like right now, I wish I just had access to all the major data sets. I wish I had access to UK Biobank, to Copenhagen, uh, to Framingham, to, to Framingham offspring. That's beautiful data. And I would run my own analysis and I just look at the triad. Why? Because typically high HDL and low triglycerides associates with good metabolic health, whatever diet you're on. And I would offer that part of why I think that that's the case is the lipid energy model. The very thing I've just been describing is even if you are on a low fat, high carb diet, I would expect your HDL to be, your HDL may not be as high because you're not actually bringing in as much uh, APOA1. Um, but I do expect your triglycerides to be lower, just like I would expect that your glucose would be lower. Whereas conversely, if somebody is down, you know, downstream of metabolic syndrome, typically both their glucose and their triglycerides tend to be higher. And again, I'm thinking like an engineer, I'm thinking about it from a systemic standpoint. I'm saying, look, forget about whether triglyceride-rich lipoproteins are atherogenic. I think the state of existence where you're having trouble parking your triglycerides in your adipocytes is a systemic state of atherogenicity, right? I'm not surprised that somebody who's hyperinsulinemic is going to uh, have a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease because I, I think that that's, a, that's clearly a broken system. They're developing ectopic fat and all of the other signs that uh, would lead us to realize that this is that this problem is global in their body, um, and that that's why again, you know, it's it's a it's a value to be able to look at these things in combination. That it, as much as I like triglycerides and HDL, I still want to see them alongside LDL. What's even better still is if I could look at them alongside um, insulin. Um, yes. Insulin also would say a lot as well. In fact, if I had to pick a marker that would probably look at, uh, in succession, um, I, it would, it'd probably be insulin in particular, yeah. but, but I don't want to hang my hat on that. Again, the engineer in me, I want to see it all. <laughs> I want all yeah. the diagnostics. No, no, but, but, but we can't have Dave, the cholesterol guy going to being Dave, the insulin guy that, that just, that let's just hang your hat on one thing, not, <laughs> not two things, because that would just be completely confusing for the rest of the community because, where we we've you've you've your legacy is in this not not the other <laughs> it can change um but what's interesting is that the focus on ldl but when you look at metabolic syndrome the five markers that they use 
does not include LDL, yet there's so much focus on LDL. Yeah, and to be sure, metabolic syndrome is kind of like uh, lean mass hyperresponders in that it was an emergence of observations. So it's not it's not as if those five criteria they were something that there seemed to be such a commonality that they could just start identifying them as such. And sure enough, it would have a high association with cardiovascular disease. And you're exactly right. The low HDL and the high triglycerides being two of the criteria, I think was very relevant. So yeah, in that, in that sense, I mean, I, it's, I'm glad that there's more and more of a focus on metabolism in general. And I think it's great. I wish it would move a lot faster and frankly would focus a lot more, especially on insulin. I'm, I'm still to this day, I'm still shocked that um, insulin isn't a part of every major blood test yeah. or even basic blood test. Like I, and the other issue I have is I wish that um, one of the things that they've moved away from, I don't know how it is outside the States, but here in the States, they've changed it to where they're not requiring fasted blood tests anymore. So patients can just take tests whenever, which I, it hurts my head to think about that because I've taken an insane amount of tests. I've taken some of the neighborhood of 140 to date, something like that. And I can tell you metabolic markers change quite rapidly, of course, because of course they do, right? Your, your metabolism is changing in, in succession throughout the day. You want a baseline that you can make comparisons to, especially if you're only getting a test once a year. Yeah. And so I, I wish that they would go back to fasting and if I could, I would make them all have insulin and at least C-reactive protein. I think there should also be a non-specific inflammatory uh, marker, again, in at least the basic blood tests. And it's really interesting, obviously, to compare, um, obviously, with Australia and, and the UK with our universal healthcare systems, because, you know, I can sort of go to my, my primary care, like my GP, and sort of ask for that. But in the UK, it's it's a private test. It's something that's not universal to the um, to the NHS. That's right, isn't it, Jackie? Insulin. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, they won't do it on the NHS. No, they won't do it in their universal healthcare. So, um, so that but, again becomes then an access issue. Yeah, but for listeners that are listening, it's not hugely expensive to have it done. No. Um, I think you said it was. How, how much was it? It's like I 60 it's pounds? 60 pounds and maybe 50 or 60 pounds for a blood draw. It's, it's mm. not a lot once a year. Not, not to but do it's, shameless. It's accessible. Not to do a shameless plug, but as you guys know, we run a service. Oh, yeah. Your own yeah. Mm. Your own service, uh, yeah. We we have it for 12 bucks for $12. Um, so it's extremely accessible. And part of why it's $12 is because we keep getting lower and lower prices because we keep getting bulk discounts for how often we're doing tests. And since a lot of the folks that are um, following our work are already ordering the kinds of things that we're already into, it makes it easier and easier to get better pricing. Um, Does that only work in the US though? So far, although it's interesting, (laughs) it's interesting because both UK and Australia are the next major areas we're thinking about expanding into. Come Uh, come here. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, I mean, honestly, I wish one of the other frustrations that a lot of our, um, a lot of people who are in our position uh, deal with is that they'll even ask their doctor, they'll say, I'd like to get an insulin test too. And some doctors will refuse and they'll say, no, I don't, I wouldn't know what to do with it. 
which is so strange to me that that's where medicine is these days is that there's um, and, and to speak of it from their perspective, from the doctor's perspective, there's some liability concerns if they order a test that they don't feel that they can interpret uh, as well. But I mean, I come from technology. If we want it, we just get it and we order it and we expect to have it on demand as we, you know, see fit. Um, it's, it's frustrating to me that there's a lot of red tape. Again, I know a lot of it's very well-intentioned, but particularly for something that's diagnostic for things like tests, right? Like, of course you should, you know, be an informed consumer. You should be aware that there's risks in misinterpreting things. Um, but all of that said, I'm just, I'm very pro information gathering and, you know, getting knowledge and, and yeah, have customers, you know, sign waivers as necessary, have them, you know, be aware there's risks um, in that lack of interpretation. But all of that said, um, insulin's, I think, going to be a great example. I honestly feel, honestly feel like in, I don't know how long these days, I guess I'm a little cynical, but somewhere in the future, 10, 20 years, something like that, we'll be looking back going, of course, why weren't we testing for insulin? What, why did we go for decades long after Joseph Kraft, um, bless his soul, had left us, still not recognizing how early we could detect the onset of type 2 diabetes? Like, duh. Like, it's just, it's a no-brainer. No it kind of makes me feel a little cynical about cholesterol because what I'm working with is complicated. Um, look, seeing like progressively higher levels of insulin is not complicated. It's really easy to detect this divergence between the insulin and the glucose levels you have that you assume are healthy, not realizing how much your pancreas is picking up the slack. That's a very easy conclusion to draw, but his work never really caught fire. Um, but who knows? Maybe it will in time. Yeah. Imagine if Joseph Kraft had Patreon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and crowdfunding. <laughs> Well, and, then, and again, this is where this is where I benefit, and I have to acknowledge it. I, I mean, I I lucked out in many respects that a I was at a point in time in my life where I really could focus on this. I had um, a nest egg from having um, sold my business from a couple of years earlier. Uh, not you know, not a nest egg that could put me into retirement, but could allow me to do, for example, a couple of years of research. And yeah, eventually I did the same thing. I opened up a Patreon. We have a membership um, uh, area, for example, but it's mainly just for people to help fund us, Siobhan and myself, just to move this thing forward. And um, and yeah, social media. Again, social media, had it not been around, this research couldn't have gotten off the grounds to the level that it did. You may be exactly right. It could be that if Joseph Kraft were coming up in today's day and age and in the same circumstances, he might have been able to get a lot more done. Um, that said, I mean, we we know about it now and we're still having trouble getting the traction on it now. So maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things at stake that people don't want to change the way they think. But that's been the case through history you know we've seen it with cleanliness in hospitals you know that how many years did that take or how many decades did that take to happen that the pathologist the um 
they were moving from the morgue to the maternity units and transferring bacteria you know that all took decades for that to come out so it's a sad story um because you know he eventually died of an infection and they they had him in a a um mental mental yeah it's uh but you know the one thing that gives me i've got a bright light to throw on this which is the low carb movement itself the low carb movement is in my opinion maybe one of the biggest grassroots scientific movements of its time really maybe in in human history given again given the internet it makes this possible if you think about it what's its origin its origin didn't start you know because there were these groundbreaking studies that all of a sudden doctors around the world were like i'm going to decide to put you now on a high saturated fat you know, low carb diet. No, it was actually a lot of folks who were pushing back against the guidelines, you know, to quote, um, late Sarah Halbert. That's, that's literally where a lot of people were specifically butting heads saying, Hey, I'm getting more of a benefit in lowering my A1C and, you know, my insulin levels. And I seem to be feeling better. And a lot of things are uh, improving on the diabetes side. And again, this isn't to say it's for everyone. Um, but it is to say that, I've certainly seen, I've certainly been close to friends and family who've had huge material benefit. And this includes my own dad and my sister. Like it's really changed our lives. I really, I genuinely feel like my dad is um, going to be healthier longer and, you know, maybe living longer, frankly, because of my bumping into this seven years ago. And his now being inspired to do it. And I'm just so grateful um, for that. But, um, you know, back then, too, I was looking. The Mayo Institute was like, no, you need to have carbs with every meal. ADA was like, carbs with every meal, 60 grams, 40 to 60 grams per meal or something along those lines. And those things have slowly changed, but they've not been changing in a big parade. (laughs) It's not like the institutes have been going ah, you know, got to say this loudly, we kind of got this part, maybe not exactly right, you know, and, and it's a shame that they, well, there's a, yeah, we know there's a lot of vested interests and vested interests here, but you know, it, but it's good, you know, because there's, there's shining lights. And I think it's really good that you've shifted, I suppose, the narrative here to hope, you know, that this is the hope for the future. And I think, so my next question is, you know, you're you're doing this longitudinal study. There's going to be these results. What else is on the what else is on the horizon for the the citizen science extraordinaire? Well, there are. Gosh, this might this might end up being. I gotta figure out what I can say. Here's here's what I'm gonna say that I'm not told anybody publicly yet. Um, uh, a couple months ago, a month and a half ago two months ago, something like that. There really has been a sort of game change of sorts. This is where I did my presentation at Low Carb USA. Um, it helped set up some key meetings. And there's now possibly, knock on wood, two other research projects that are in the works and one other media project. Um, but I can't say a lot on them other than... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fabulously, kiddo, you've 
you know, folks, you've heard it here first. There's things in the yeah. pipeline. So um, here's the scoop. We've got the scoop. Yeah, definitely in the pipeline and definitely um, all of them are pretty, pretty serious endeavors. I, I'm pretty confident I can't do them all at the same time uh, simultaneously, but um, they're, well, they're you're, pretty- you're an engineer. Why can't you get to be able to, you know, engineer to clone yourself? Now, come on, Dave. I think you're behind the eight ball here. Engineer a clone. Yeah, I'll, I'll work on that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was... If I could, if I could get to where I could uh, um, advance technology on human cloning and particularly cloning our our memories or whatever, so that it's actually a true replica. Hey, it would fund my next, you know, several studies. On <laughs> <laughs> actually, well, I mean, maybe we maybe we need one of those cloaks. You know, the um, what was it like the invisibility cloak from Harry Potter, so you can actually sort of clone yourself or the the timing, the Hermione right, timing the, thing. thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually the very first place my mind went with that is, Oh, think of the experiments, the experiments. If you could do an exact clone and then one gets the intervention, the other doesn't, the other's the control. You did that with your your sister, right? Because you did, you you even roped your sister into one of these experiments, sort of, you know, cholesterol drop, didn't you? In 2016, she was, she was my first. Guinea pig. N of two, right. And uh, that <laughs> talk that I gave in Breckenridge in 2017 is the one where I expanded on it a lot. And God bless her soul um, that she would really go through everything with me at the same time. We did, I want to say something like 11 days and everything was identical. All the food was identical. I didn't even proportion change it. I'm, I made it to where literally gram for gram, everything she ate, I ate and vice versa. So wow. it's pretty cool. We we got to see, you know, changes in our lipid levels at different comparable uh, comparative degrees. But outside of the magnitude being different, the curves were nearly identical. So the correlation was about the same. That was I mean, that was the point, really, for me. Once I could see it replicated with my sister at the same time, that was like, OK, this is real. This is this really is seemingly very metabolic and very mechanistic in a way that um we can track and change Mm -hmm. one of the things you said earlier was um that people are now paying more attention to metabolic mechanisms or health and um do you just see that in the low carb world though i mean are we really seeing it making a difference or or are we only seeing it because of the people we mix with you know i think it gets more emphasis in the low carb world compared to um, most other groups, I would say. And I think to be fair, a lot of it is deserving in that I do wish that there was more, I wish that there was more discussion on where people are at at a personal level. One of the things that I don't like about social media is that we have lots of influencers who never came from a place of metabolic challenge. And so um, God bless them. But the, but the person who's been generally healthy their whole life, and maybe they were now super into fitness or something like that, they're talking about what they're eating for their diet as though it can be applied to anybody and everybody. And, um, and it's kind of, it's honestly, I'm a little, per, I'm a little close to this on a personal level because I have a couple of challenge cases 
in my family. And one of them was, you know, was very excited about a, a, a fitness personality um, who had never been like obese or anything like that. Mm. Uh, but this challenge case was coming from that. And um, the, the fitness person was very much uh, very pro uh, high protein, uh, kind of protein centric sort of low carb, right? Um, which I think is for like a lot of lean mass hyperresponders, that works great. Like they start out super keto and they find that they need more protein, particularly given that they're very fitness centric, right? Um, in the case of this challenge case in my family, it, it took us a while to eventually determine that no, really that challenge case needs to be higher fat and yeah. not, not low protein. You still need to be adequate no. protein. Yeah. But the problem was, is they were not getting satiated enough on the high protein yes. diet, right? And this is something, as you know, my colleague Siobhan is very uh, vocal on, along with uh, Amber Heard. And it, it, it's, it's, this is anecdotal, but it seems to me that I find more often folks who are more metabolically healthy, but going low carb, high fat, that if they do have a stumbling block with protein, they're the ones who are more likely uh getting inadequate protein. And that's fair. They should be moving more towards making sure they hit, hit adequacy. But ironically, I likewise know a lot of people like Siobhan, who found that no, actually, they need more fat, they need to intentionally move yes. their weight for the higher proportionality of fat, right? Yeah. Um, and in that sense, that's why I want to bring it back to um, your results may vary, right? You've got you've got to Part of metabolic health, I think, is understanding your metabolism. It's not trying to find these exact guidelines and then getting focused on that. In fact, that's that's part of what kind of got us into this mess is I don't like the idea of these one size fits fits all guidelines because then it becomes the bizarre goal where people pay attention to those and don't pay attention to their bodies. Yeah. This is like as much as I am an engineer and I love to measure a million different things, I don't like these reference ranges when they're built off of different populations than you are. And the same thing when you're looking at things on social media, right? Understand that the social media person you're looking at, who a lot of their, well, a lot of what they're saying sounds great and convincing, that may be true and it may apply to you, but it also may not apply to you, even if their success story sounds super attractive. You've got to get better about listening to yourself and what your body's telling you. And frankly, to be your own citizen scientist, right? You, you need to be able to get used to experimenting with things to find out what works uh, best for your circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the frustrating thing about this is, and I think people find it frustrating, is you can't say, do this, 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 and this, because it doesn't work for everyone. So you've got to find your own way. Absolutely. That resonates so much with me because obviously, you know, um, watching, say, The Biggest Loser, and there you have Jillian Michaels and she, you know, drop down, give me 20, eat low fat, all this sort of stuff, eat your, you know, three meals plus your, your three snacks a day and, you know, those those sorts of influences. And so too, I mean, we do have those very vocal people within our community and, as you mentioned, you know, the, the higher protein, we must max out our protein that does not work for me. And, you know, what, what resonates is that N equals one. And I think as 
Jackie and I have gone along and we've tried different things. You know, we've we've done our we've done different types of fasting or we've done different types of levers. And, you know, she's had great success, whereas it doesn't work for me. And equally so, what worked for me doesn't work for for Jackie. That's why she's she's my yin to my yang, you know, that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's not prescriptive. It's N equals one. And I think embracing that inquiry and being a critical inquiry but it's about knowing what works for you and being afraid not being afraid to experiment and pull one lever at a time not many many that just contaminates the the observation intervention but um yeah just being intuitively aware and critical a critical intuitiveness around that but um yeah but i think at this point we need to sort of go can we have you back for a cholesterol 101 lesson? I think, you know, we've skipped that part, but I think it will be important for the listeners that, you know, really will want to have a, um, you know, the cliff notes, the 101 on, on cholesterol, but we will invite you back maybe, you know, in a, in a year's time to um, we'll hear more on the scoop of the, um, the projects and then perhaps the early results. That would be really great to have you back. I would, I would love to come back on. That would be and, um, That'd be great. And is there anything else that we haven't sort of that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered already? Because we've covered a lot of ground from 2017 onwards, but mostly in the last 12 months. No, actually, I, it's been kind of fun to actually talk a bit more about the research ins and outs of this and sort of where the journey's been to this point. Um and I'm excited about what comes next. I, I look forward to the point where I can talk about it more freely, but I guess in a roundabout way, I've already at least been a little bit, you know, letting a little of the cat out of the peak out of the bag, I guess you could say. Yeah, Having little, little scoops. We're having little, little, little very keto scoops and that sort of stuff. So, so um, tell the listeners how they can get in contact with you if they want to support you um, financially. How, how can they do that? Uh, sure. Well, of course, I'm one well, generally very active on Twitter. I might be a little less so these days for reasons I mentioned in this podcast. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Real Dave Feldman. Uh, that's also my Instagram. At some point, I may try to put in more effort into Instagram. I'm not that great there. Um, there's also the Citizen Science Foundation. Again, we are a bona fide public charity. It's a 501c3. So your donations are not only um, welcome, but they are in fact tax deductible. And that way you can also help support our research. And of course, uh, there's cholesterol code, which is sort of the hub, uh, for our information. I did mention own your labs. That is our, uh, blood service, um, uh, reseller. I didn't get to get into it, but we also have a citizen science component to that as well. We actually have a built-in 10% off. If you contribute your anonymized data, which we intend to make available to people, um, and then, yeah, the uh, we we have membership in Patreon, which you can find at Cholesterol Code. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of that's kind of the menu of different things out there. Right. We'd like to leave our listeners with your three top tips, please, Dave. Get blood work more frequently. I know I'm a little biased on that, but I would say try to shoot for at least quarterly, right? Um, and at least lipids fasting insulin and C-reactive protein. That's so that's one. Two, I know there's a lot of different health things that people can say, but 
one of them I would say that I feel pretty confident about is just try not to eat three to four hours before you go to sleep. Of all the different arrangements of timing that you could eat or not eat, I would go with that one because it has a lot to do with how it is you're going to go to sleep with what you have for your metabolism. Um, and lastly, I'm not good about this, but I've learned more and more about the importance of sleep itself. And that's actually something that's going to be a big goal of mine coming in next year. So even though I'm preaching this, I'm not yet practicing it, but that's also why I want to tell you about that because I'm going to fit in a fourth one. The fourth one is those of us who are in these kinds of positions need to continue to be open about our own personal challenges and sleep is one of mine. Yeah, me too. Yes, I know, but it's, it's, I think it's under, under recognized or undersold that, you know, how important sleep is. And, um, I was mentioning to you off air about, you know, listening to podcasts. And one of the a great podcasts I listened to was with the author um, Why We Need Sleep by Matthew Walker. And that was just phenomenal, was just obviously Matthew Walker and, and the sleep book was just wonderful in, in terms of why we need it for our brains, how restorative it is. And it's just like exercise. You have to, as you said, not one of my big things about not eating before going to bed late and trying to stop eating before sleep. And, um, yeah, that's definitely a work in progress for me too. But um, as always, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure always hearing you talk. And I think, you know, the, the work that I'm absolutely just enamoured of, of how far you've come from our first meeting in the kitchen at the Two Keto <laughs> Dudes house at Breckenridge. Um yeah, it's just been an absolute pleasure to sort of watch your trajectory, and um, I'm sure that we'll muchly, in, you know, invite you back and be great to to have you back. And can't wait to hear more about the citizen science work that you're doing. Well, thank you, and I, it's it is kind of cool because in a in a roundabout way, it's sort of nostalgic to be chatting with you again. I I remember that house very well, and I remember that talk very well. Um. In a round, you know, I mentioned this sometimes in private. I feel like I just sort of have a, a case of perpetual imposter syndrome because I'm still just an engineer. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm just a guy who kind of stumbled into this and still keeps waiting for it to just kind of wrap up. And um, uh, it just well, doesn't. Not, not too quickly because we need the results from that study. So. <laughs> and, all, and future studies. Yeah, which I've said this to my wife several times. I'm pretty sure I'll at least get another half to full hour of sleep once this freaking study's over. That's <laughs> a lot of what helps. It's a lot of what's making me lose my sleep. So what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> thank you for being with us today. Yeah, of course, thank you. ladies, you have a wonderful right. day, weekend, everything. Yeah. <laughs> you get to bed it's your now. your bedtime anyway. You, you get to bed now. <laughs> yes, so I yeah. get to sleep. All right. I'll see you guys later. Okay. Right. Bye. Um, you've got me on the spot now, Jackie. It's, it's like, I can't use the well, Jackie, the so Jackie. And now, Jackie, <laughs> to sort of, you know, come come at my reflection and, and summary of our chat with Dave Feldman. It is really great. You know, I really have a lot of time for, for Dave and what he is doing and his endeavours and I've 
fully support the fact that he is doing what you've sort of, you know, said a number of times, that this is a grassroots movement. He's coming at it from the science and as a citizen scientist is a great example of your call to arms about the grassroots movement. Yeah. And and he saw that as a as a light, a bright light, as a positive that we are having an impact as a low carb movement to to bring awareness to this. And something that I think is happening is it it sort of has to be a grassroots movement because there is so much tied up in the um in the the status quo they don't want to change things they don't want anything to change and and he mentioned how um he tried to take his cholesterol hypothesis to doctors and they weren't interested nobody is interested in doing something different you know this works also we think it works and it suits our needs and it suits the government policy and it suits the vested interests so let's just leave it as it is so we have to move it that's right. And looking back on our on our interview, what if Joseph Kraft, you know, had a social media, a TikTok account? Could you imagine, you know, the impact that, you know, some of the the previous the previous advocates for thinking differently about cholesterol or insulin or, you know, how we have the mainstream. So counter to the diet heart hypothesis, you know, where we know and we can see now how vested interests work, you know, how they have embedded themselves in, say, public policy or health policy or how that's sort of been really entrenched in in policy being countered to that and really having to sort of go to the evidence and creating that new evidence as he's done now with the full support of his patreons as well as you know Siobhan Huggins as well as you know bringing on board his Oxford and Cambridge and Stanford you know colleagues to to do that is is really great it's a real testament to his you know it's just his commitment and his commitment to being that citizen scientist and as you said you know leading the light being the bright light you know working towards change and evidencing and and being counter to that yeah and isn't it I mean and it's great that he's got Dr Trow and Nick Norvitz on board with him because you know they are seeing the positive effects of this um but we had this with um tony royal how it's this the engineers that reverse engineer it and they have no vested interest so they look they look at it from their own point of view this is me and this is what i'm going through and they reverse engineer it the doctors don't do that. They just do what they're told in a way. That's what they're taught. That's what they learn. And then they just follow that with no thinking about it. And I think that's where our education system is going, not just for doctors, but in all areas is follow what you're told. Don't think about it. Just learn it and do it. It is this 
as you said, the engineers, because they have that systems thinking. So just reflecting on that, being able to teach critical thinking and to get to the why and get to the evidence. But part of that, as you said, it's, it's the curriculum. You know, it's the people that hold the curriculum and challenging and making sure that the curriculum is up to date is that I can say from a, as a university teacher, that's, that's hard. That takes time. It's being an investment in time to make sure the curriculum is continuously up to date. But as a registered health professional, it's my responsibility to have my continuing professional development. My, my CPD is up to date and that then in turn goes into my curriculum to make sure that that's evidence-based. So it, it's the holders of the people that educate and credential. Yes, you're right. The people that hold the curriculum to make sure that it's not just perpetuating the mainstream, which is not necessarily current and evidenced. Yeah. I know that the medical profession say it has to be evidence-based but I really doubt the evidence and how they manipulate it, and and I which think which evidence, really, yeah. yeah, whose evidence, what, whose what evidence from the evidence, and who's funding the evidence, and what do they want out of the evidence, and yeah, mm. yeah, I think you, yeah, you can that that spiral uh, of questioning, but it, what you're saying is really. Our responsibility as health consumers is to have that critical, to be critical, and to and to ask those questions of our healthcare providers is just is to keep poking the the medical bear, so to speak, just to make sure that that's that's right. Is that right for me? Yeah. How and is I, that right? Yes, and I think you said something really important. It's our responsibility. So our health is our responsibility it's not a doctor's responsibility it's not anybody else's responsibility it's not the government's responsibility it's our responsibility and therefore we have to get knowledgeable about Mm. ourselves our health and what's good for our body and you know most people in the world that are listening to us will be on that journey of self-exploration on some continuum there'll be somewhere along the continuum of they're looking at this from a different point of view because just by being part of the low-carb world you're almost going against what the medical profession is saying and we get more and more doctors coming on board and there's more knowledge about Mm. it there's more things but um in some respects, everybody that's listening to this will be doing it because they're coming to a place where they're thinking that what they're telling me doesn't work for me. Now I need to do something different. So we're all on this journey of doing it for ourselves. Yeah, and we're all the N equals one, right? And we heard that from Dave. And as you mentioned about Tony Royal, he was his own N equals one engineering wise you know that that's what they did they did an intervention they observed the effects and obviously circling back to Dave you know he saw that the high cholesterol being the lean mass hyper responder was obviously not what the system you know the system was meant to responded differently so uh, really good Uh, yeah a lot of time for Dave and we will have hit the links to the YouTubes, his page, cholesterolco.com. 
on our show notes. And so just remind us, Jackie, where the show notes can be found. The show notes can be, before we go to the show notes, actually, Louise, um, the Fabulously Keto Diet and Lifestyle Journal is a great way to do that end of one experiment because you can say, right, this is what I'm going to do for the next 12 weeks. And then you can start to notice the results and you can log them and see um, whether you're already on on the journey and you want to change something up, you know, one that one thing or two things, or whether you're just starting out and you just want to see, does this work for me? I think that's a great place to, you know, it'd be a great investment. So you can you too can engineer your intervention using the journal to tracking yeah track it and keep note of it and stuff like that and you can add in bits like blood tests if you want to there's we haven't got a specific place for that but you could note them in there's lots of pages where you can add things in so um the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash one two two great thanks jackie Thank you. Like many people, you might associate the start of January with the beginning of yet another diet, a diet that deep down you don't believe will work, but you plough on with it anyway because you know you owe it to yourself to try to be healthier, fitter and slimmer. But dieting in a way that doesn't suit your body or your lifestyle and doesn't yield sustainable results is not just bad for your physical health, it's a surefire way to make you miserable. Enough is enough. It's time to get your health and fitness back on track for good with my new year, new body, new you program. If you know anyone who wants to get fitter, slimmer and get rid of the fatigue and brain fog, then my program starts at the beginning of February, just in time for when those new year resolutions are wearing thin. To find out more details, go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash new hyphen year. The link is in the show notes. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag tfkp all the links are on the website and in the show notes if you haven't subscribed to the podcast click the subscribe button reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform we appreciate you taking the time and read them all disclaimer The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, 
healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.